So good morning, everyone, and welcome to Engaging in the Bodhisattva's Deeds by Shanti Deva. Uh, my name is Tenzin Seppel, and I've been asked to lead a review today because uh, our usual presenter is sick with COVID. <laughs> um, in fact, all but two people at the Abbey right now uh, currently have COVID, but don't worry, we're all resting and slowly getting better. So Venerable Damcho and I uh, are the ones free of COVID right now. Um, I just returned from five weeks in India. I was attending an international uh, nuns Varsa, Bhikshuni Varsa um, in Shravasti, India. And so I got back on Sunday. So I missed the whole COVID storm that happened just prior to that. And I'm broadcasting this morning from Tara's Refuge, just down the road from the Abbey. Um, so this morning, I thought we'd start our motivation uh, with drawing by drawing from a few verses from the first chapter of Engaging in the Bodhisattva's Deeds, um, a few verses that really stand out and help us to orient our mind towards the Dharma. Um, in the first chapter, verse four says, leisure and endowment are very hard to find, and since they accomplish what is meaningful for humanity, if I do not take advantage of them now, how will such a perfect opportunity come about again? And this is a good reminder for us here at the Abbey. You know, if we don't take advantage of the incredible opportunity and conditions that we have right now, something like COVID or something like the, the recent uh, fire scare that we had um, in the area, these remind us how fragile this precious human rebirth is, this precious life that we have right now. And so this verse, verse four, highlights the fact that right now each of us have a precious human life. And this gives us the causes and conditions that really allow us to make spiritual progress. And what makes this life so incredibly precious is that and each moment we can use it to create the causes for a good rebirth, for personal liberation and full, full awakening, uh, full awakening all the way to enlightenment. And it's precious because in each moment we are creating karma. And so in each moment we can choose to create virtuous karma. We can create merit, which will result in happiness and good conditions for us. So we don't want to waste this chance and you know if we think about it if i think about it if i really look at how many moments each day i'm creating virtue and how many moments i've gotten swept up in in some um, affliction even if it's just you know a, a mild affliction if i really weigh those up I probably i spend more time in affliction or neutral states of mind than than virtues. So this is something to really pay attention to. And if we think about it, if we think about how we want to use this precious opportunity that we have that can inspire us to be more intentional about making sure we set our motivations each day. Like for instance, um, today as much as possible, may I not harm any living being with my body, speech, and mind including myself, and today as much as possible, may I benefit others with my body, speech, and mind. 
And may I engage in all those activities as much as possible with a bodhicitta motivation. And then really thinking about the values that we want to live by throughout the day so that we're aware of them as we go through our activities. And then verse 28 is also, I think, a very good reminder. It says, although wishing to be rid of misery, they run towards misery itself. And although wishing to have happiness, like an enemy, they ignorantly destroy it. So we might think, well, who would do such a thing? But unfortunately, the they in that verse is us, isn't it? It, it, it refers to us. They run towards misery itself. And like an enemy, they ignorantly destroy happiness. So although we want to make good use of our precious human rebirth, you know, what is it that stops us? And that's a good question to investigate. What stops me from really engaging in virtue, the causes of happiness and good conditions? And what it comes down to is the vast amount of afflictions and negative karma that we've created in this life and previous lives. You know, these are the true causes of suffering. And so what follows in that chapter are many verses on the benefits of developing bodhicitta, the mind aspiring for full awakening um, for the benefit of others. And so verse 29 says, for those who are deprived of happiness and burdened with many sorrows, bodhicitta satisfies them with all joys and dispels all suffering and clears away confusion where is there a comparable virtue? Where is there even such a friend? Where is there merit similar to this? So if we're new to the topic of bodhicitta or the mind aspiring for enlightenment, for the welfare of all beings, there are many, many resources on tubtonshodron.org. Um, where Venerable Children and others have taught about developing bodhicitta, how to actually do that. And if we've heard teachings on developing bodhicitta before, there's really no better time than right now to make generating bodhicitta a priority in our lives. As His Holiness reminds us every time he teaches, you know, the first thing he does when he wakes up is he thinks about bodhicitta and emptiness. And so that's a very good practice for each of us. So right now, if we reflect for a moment how all sentient beings are controlled by afflictions most of the day, and that those afflictions naturally lead us to engage in non-virtue, and whenever there's non-virtue, suffering is definitely going to follow, that can really soften our heart. This is true of all the people that we love, all the strangers that we encounter. It's true of people we find difficult. It's true of all of us. And so let's take a moment right now to reflect on how wonderful it would be if all these living beings met with happiness, true happiness, lasting happiness. How wonderful if they were free of suffering and the causes of suffering. 
And so in this way, we can cultivate, even just briefly, cultivate a mind of loving kindness, a mind of compassion, But if we think about it, you know, our, what is our ability like right now to actually provide lasting happiness and freedom from suffering for even ourselves, <laughs> let alone our loved ones and strangers and all sentient beings? It's quite limited, isn't it? So therefore, we need to accomplish the causes for bringing about full awakening. So that from that vantage point, we will have the best opportunity to fully benefit all sentient beings. So um, I was thinking about what might be helpful given that we've landed in chapter nine, which is quite challenging. It's different from the other chapters that we've studied. So. Um, Keep in mind that Venerable Children has been teaching this text since May of 2020. So we've been at this for a while. It's a long text. It's full of amazing advice. And we've had the opportunity to slowly go through uh, each of the previous eight chapters. And all of those teachings are available on YouTube. So if you've missed some of those, you can go back and... and uh, take advantage of the archive there on the YouTube. I imagine that most of you have found some verses in each chapter, one or two verses in each chapter that really inspired your Dharma practice and um, you know, really helped you to work with your mind and the afflictions that come up. Maybe you've written a few of those out and put them on um, your refrigerator or a mirror somewhere to remind you of them. Or perhaps you notice that some of these verses are coming to mind in different situations when um, you meet challenging conditions or an affliction is arising, especially um, the beautiful verses from chapter six on patience when we meet with um, difficult situations. And I'll bet some of you have been keeping up just fine uh, with the first eight chapters. And maybe you found since starting chapter nine on wisdom, you feel quite lost or like suddenly we're speaking a different language. And in a way we are. Um, but I, I thought to uh, bring up this image that we often talk about how Buddhism and the Dharma, the, the, Buddha, the Buddhist teachings are like, they include two wings of a bird. There are the teachings from the method aspect of the path. That's one wing. And then there are teachings from the wisdom aspect of the path. That's the other. Or sometimes they're translated as the lineage of vast conduct and the lineage of profound view. So we have teachings, um, topics covered, in, like the topics covered in chapters one through eight, they're predominantly focused on the method side of the path. They're a little easier for us to comprehend and put into practice right away. And especially these tap topics in chapters one through eight, they lead us systematically to um, aspire to generate bodhicitta and then to engage in the bodhisattva deeds, the deeds of a, of a bodhisattva, someone who has cultivated uncontrived spontaneous bodhicitta, like generosity and ethics, 
patience, joyous effort, concentration. So we've gone through those and probably those were relatively easier to understand. But chapter nine is very different because it's focused on the wisdom side of the path. And when scholars such as Shanti Deva or Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, Sankapa, and others, when they write about wisdom, instead of just teaching in a very straightforward way on how to develop wisdom, they often begin their teachings by refuting the wrong views of others. And that's exactly how chapter nine has begun, refuting these wrong views or limited views of the realists, um, different tenant schools, what we might call lower tenant schools, and how um, yeah, they, they don't quite identify self-grasping ignorance in the most complete way. So it's good to keep in mind that often these teachings on wisdom, they first identify others' wrong assertions or views. That's how they begin. And then, only then, they start to show what our assertions are. And then the third aspect of those teachings is eliminating any remaining doubts. So that's kind of a threefold presentation for um, classic teachings on wisdom. And that's that's what uh, Shantideva is doing in this chapter. So when we, when we get into um, looking at different views, views of different Buddhist schools by, um, by when we study teachings on wisdom, that really requires that we have a foundational study of a topic called tenets. Um, tenets means established conclusions. So if we haven't been exposed to Buddhist tenets before, these teachings um, can really sound like another language. And in a way they are, they're more like they're being presented from the point of view of philosophy, Buddhist philosophy. But hopefully that won't scare us away. Um, and so this morning I thought to do a more general overview of Buddhist tenets um, to help create some context for this chapter and the refutations that Shantideva is beginning with. So I'm, I'm hoping this will be of uh, some benefit. Studying the, the method side of the path is, is, like I said, much easier for us. We can hear the teachings, uh, apply them to our life very easily, uh, very quickly. But studying and practicing the wisdom side of the path often requires more effort on our part. Um, it relies on, for instance, developing more logic and reasoning. And also um, just being exposed to these different views um, that earlier practitioners came up with. When they read through the Buddha's teachings, they had certain understandings. And there was a whole uh, gradation of understanding. So something that can encourage us to um, put in the effort to learn more about these teachings on wisdom in general, and to begin learning about tenets in particular, is understanding 
being really clear about why developing wisdom is important. Specifically, why developing the wisdom realizing emptiness is important. And I think all of us can relate to this because basically, you know, the bottom line is that all of us want to be happy and want to be free of suffering. And when we really look into, you know, what brings our suffering, it comes down to the afflictions and the negative actions, the non-virtue that we engage with based on those afflictions. And so if we tie that into an understanding of samsara, samsara is basically our body and mind controlled by afflictions and these contaminated actions, actions contaminated by self-grasping ignorance. And so if we really look into the faults of having a mind and body controlled by karma and afflictions, you know, the fact that we're subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, being separated from what we like, etc. When we really look into that deeply, um, you know, we'll find that it's actually a really unsatisfying situation. <laughs> it's... It's not a great situation to be in. You know, the fact that all of our loved ones are going to get sick and die, that is just the reality of being a human being controlled by karma and afflictions. And if we're really honest, and this is what the middle scope of the Lam Rim invites us to do, you know, even looking at the pleasures that we experience in samsara, the pleasures that we experience with a mind and body, controlled by karma and afflictions, even those are unsatisfying. Why? Because they're temporary. They don't last. They're fleeting. And that fleetingness makes them unsatisfying to us. This is our actual predicament in samsara. And so when we investigate this deeply over many years, then actually a strong aspiration for liberation starts to arise in the mind and a, an aspiration for full awakening. Now, this may not happen when we're new to Buddhism because basically when we're, when we're relatively new to Buddhism, we're more interested in just using Buddhism to make us happy, <laughs> you know, to lessen some of the difficulties that we find in our everyday life. Um, but we, we can't leave our practice of Buddhism just at that superficial level because the real beauty of the buddhist teachings is that it has the potential to awaken us from all of the afflictions and the contaminated actions that we engage with and lead us to um, completely cleanse our minds like the buddhists have done completely cleanse our minds of afflictions and all the negative karmic seeds and develop all of our good qualities to their utmost extent that's that's what a buddha is and that's what a Buddha has done so that spontaneously they are benefiting sentient beings constantly without effort and we every one of us have that same potential so Buddhism describes this potential for us and gives very very precise causes to progress towards accomplishing that full potential so 
we've all heard about the Four Noble Truths, the Four Truths known by Aryas. So to to cease to bring out to bring about cessation of suffering and all the dis dissatisfaction that we experience in samsara, we have to eradicate the causes. We have to eradicate the afflictions, slowly, slowly. And we also have to eradicate all the polluted karma that is currently on our mind stream. And at the root of all those afflictions, we find self-grasping ignorance. You know, grasping at ourselves or other people um, or the objects, the phenomena around us as inherently existent. So that means um, being completely independent, you know, as if we're completely independent of our previous karma and, and completely independent of the afflictions that have um, propelled us to take this rebirth and the conditions that we find ourselves in. You know, we have this, unless we investigate, we'll just assume that the appearances of this life are true. But actually the Buddhist teachings um, lead us to really investigate what is this situation? How did I take this rebirth? Um, what are the results of the actions that I'm engaging in now? Um, so at the root of all of this difficulty is this self-grasping ignorance. And um, so identifying very clearly what is self-grasping ignorance? Well, we call this the object of negation. We're trying to negate this object. We, we want to get rid of this object. We want to oppose this object. This it's a state of mind, actually. It's a it's a mental factor that comes up in our mind and distorts the way we see things. And so we want to identify this self-grasping ignorance very clearly. Um, so that we can apply the perfect antidote. Uh, to completely eradicate it. If we can eradicate ignorance, that will naturally eradicate all the other afflictions um, that are motivated by that self-grasping ignorance. And that will naturally eliminate all the contaminated actions that we'll engage in. And therefore, that naturally will eliminate all the suffering that comes as a result. So there's a lot there in the Four Noble Truths. Luckily, there's a path that leads us, step-by-step, step, precisely leads us to be able to do all these things, to eradicate our suffering, eradicate our contaminated actions, eradicate our afflictions, and particularly, we do that by eradicating or overcoming, um, antidoting self-grasping ignorance. And so to antidote self-grasping ignorance, we need to develop wisdom. That's where our wisdom comes in. Wisdom and ignorance are opposites. They, they are contradictory. So the more we increase our wisdom, the more the ignorance naturally um, becomes reduced. And so that's what chapter nine has the potential to help us do. There are refutations of other Buddhist schools at the beginning, but towards the middle of the chapter, we'll find that there are very clear explanations of how to cultivate uh, wisdom. Now, on one hand, we are so fortunate that we have um, someone like 
uh, Geshe Chudrak to lead us through these teachings because he's um, studied many years in the monastery and he has a, a very strong experiential understanding of these teachings. That's the good side. The challenging side is that, um, you know, probably many of us have been so used to venerable children uh, taking us by the hand, step by step through a lot of these difficult teachings that his style might feel a little different to us. Um, but I really encourage all of us to hang in there. And the first time through when we hear philosophical teachings, basically we're putting imprints on our mind, learning a new language, trying to get familiar with this new language. But as we hear them again and again, just like other topics in the Lam Rim, as we hear these teachings a second time, a third time, a fourth time, um, there starts to be a foundation, a basis of understanding that we then build on um, and can begin applying in our own lives um, to really understand wisdom and how to develop wisdom. So it's important that we think about why are these teachings important for me personally? They're important for each one of us. We all need to develop uh, our wisdom. And there are different levels of wisdom. You know, there's the wisdom that understands karma. That's a type of wisdom. That's an important type of wisdom. Um, but there's also this wisdom that realizes emptiness, the, the empty nature of a false appearance, a false way of existing. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So in some of the first verses that we find in chapter nine, Shantideva is pointing out that Buddhist realists have not identified self-grasping ignorance correctly. They're not negating enough. They, they haven't found the most subtle um, level of ignorance that needs to be eradicated. And so, um, because of that, they will not be able to achieve full awakening or liberation. So we're gonna look through some tenets this morning, just a basic presentation of tenets. And it's good to keep in mind that when we study tenets, tenets of different Buddhist schools, um, we're not actually trying to refute others as much as we're trying to identify uh, the erroneous views in our own mind and develop methods to eradicate those erroneous views. So a lot of the teachings are presented as if we're trying to refute those people over there who hold a particular erroneous view. Um, but actually the real purpose is to begin to identify how am I thinking in the same way? And how can I challenge the way I'm thinking? So that's really a lot of what the, uh, the purpose of studying tenets is. It's quite challenging for us to actually penetrate a lot of our own erroneous views. And so it became quite popular among early Indian Buddhist scholars to investigate not just our own school's assertions, but to investigate what looked like lower schools assertions as a skillful way to gradually approach understanding 
this extremely subtle topic of self-grasping. There are different levels of self-grasping. There are coarse levels and there are more subtle levels. Um, so that's where the comparative study of the views of different schools came from. The Buddha didn't lay them out, you know, this school, that school, that school, that school. Not that, not that um, clearly, not that precisely. But in, in India and later in Tibet, this topic of tenets became a highly systemized um, way of creating a very effective tool for study and debate um, to investigate how one mind stream really goes from self-grasping ignorance all the way to wisdom realizing emptiness that overcomes self-grasping ignorance. And there are lots of different gradations of that grasping. And so that's what these different tenant schools give us the opportunity to look at and, and identify. So let me share some slides with you for a few moments to give you um, an overview of the Buddhist schools that we're talking about. So what's interesting, um, I'll just find a resource here. Uh, there's a very good book called Cutting Through Appearance, uh, Appearances, Practice and Theory of Tibetan Buddhism by Geshe Lundrup Sopa and Jeffrey Hopkins that um, is a beautiful presentation of tenets. I won't say it's easy, um, but it is a very nice um, presentation of tenets. So we could say that all these, all the teachings that the Buddha gave, we could say that they could be divided in terms of um, practitioners of those different tenets, or in terms of um, the philosophy of those different tenets. So all of the Buddhist schools that we're going to be talking about, all of them present um, paths or uh, methods for what we call hearers, solitary realizers, and bodhisattvas. All of them present a way for um, practitioners to attain liberation, personal liberation, and full awakening. So that's from the proponent's side. But from the philosophical point of view, um, we can look at the different um, presentations, the different assertions that these different schools give. And these schools represent practitioners who, again, they, they read the Buddhist teachings, they understood them in a certain way. Um, and there were different teachings given for different practitioners, right? Because the Buddha was so skillful. He didn't just teach a one-size-fit-all Buddhism. Rather, he taught specifically to the individual predispositions and interests of different practitioners according to their capacity. So for some, he taught what we call the fundamental, fundamental vehicle teachings. Sometimes it used to be uh, translated as the Hinayana or the lesser vehicle. And um, that those terms have fallen out of favor. So currently we're using fundamental vehicle because the teachings of those um, 
philosophical schools are fundamental to all Buddhists. But there's also a universal vehicle. Um, the, the previous translations were the Mahayana or the greater vehicle. And um, those teachings are um, what we might, again, they also teach a hearer path, a solitary realizer path that lead to personal liberation, but also the bodhisattva, bodhisattva path that leads to full awakening. Um, but the teachings are like systematically more refined as we move through these two vehicles. So initially we can say all of Buddha's teachings especially that, well, all of Buddha's teachings can be divided into fundamental vehicle teachings and universal vehicle teachings. So basically there's this, these two divisions. Now, if we look into that into a little more detail, we begin to see these four um, tenant schools that, that we talk about. Um, I think Geshe-la has been using the Sanskrit terms. So the initial school is Vibhashika, or the English translation is the Great Exposition School. And so what we find there is some of the early understandings and presentations of the Buddhist teachings. And what's interesting is that in the Vibhashika, well, I'll get to that. Okay, let's just go through these four. So there's the Vibhashika, and it also includes the South. Sautrantika, sorry, I misspelled that. That's Sautrantika or the Sutra school. So those are the two fundamental vehicle. The school is found in the fundamental vehicle. Then the universal vehicle includes the Chitta Mantra or the mind only school. Sometimes it's also translated as the Yogacara school and the Madhyamaka or the middle way school. So um, these are important divisions to be aware of and to begin investigating how it is that they present um, their understanding of the Buddhist teachings. So Vibhashika and Sautrantika, the Sutra school, um, fundamental vehicle, schools, and then the universal vehicle includes Chitta Mantra and Madhyamaka. So let's uh, look into these in just a little more detail. Now, again, what's interesting is that initially when we learn tenets, it may seem like these are hard and fast facts four schools and the presentations of each of these four schools. But in actuality, um, there were many practitioners living together at the time of the Buddha and after, uh, after the Buddha's Parinirvana, for instance, at Nalanda or the other large Buddhist universities in India, there were practitioners who understood the Buddha's teachings in very different ways. And so over time, there, there were these little pockets of people who asserted things or understood things in a certain way. Like for instance, when we talk about the Vibhashika tenant school, really what we're talking about is a collection of 18 different sub-schools 
that existed um, shortly after, you know, in the period after the Buddha was on this earth. And if you think about it, in a day and age where there was no internet, there was, it was communication was very difficult. You had to go physically from place to place, or maybe there were uh, some things that were written down that could be transported from place to place. But people were practicing in isolated areas. And so they developed certain understandings depending on their capacities and held to certain uh, understandings of what the Buddha had taught. And so when we talk about the Vibhashaka Tenet School or the Great Exposition School, we're talking about like a general presentation of what these 18 sub-schools held or asserted. Okay, so this is like a, a pedagogy. I, I think you could use it. It's like a, it's a learning tool. It's a tool that has been developed, first of all, in India, but then was really taken to its height in Tibet as a means in the monasteries for the monks, mostly the monks at that time, and nuns now, um, to hone their own understanding of what the Buddha had taught, looking at this gradation of different understandings going from more coarse to more refined. So we start with the Vibhashaka, or the Great Exposition School. And what we find is that some of the tenets of the Vibhashakas are similar or influenced by some of the non-Buddhist schools or non-Buddhist uh, traditions that were alive and, and well in India at the time of the Buddha. Um, so there are some, some tenets or some understandings from non-Buddhists, but also uh, mixed with some of the teachings of the Buddha. Then the next school that we find in South Trantica, uh, the Sutra school, again, there is this, it's like the next most more subtle explanation and presentation of understanding of the Buddhist teachings. And there are these two divisions of the South Trantica tenets, tenet followers. There are the followers of scripture and the followers of reasoning. And so they'll look to different um, sutras or different teachers. Um, they follow different sutras or different teachers in terms of these tenets that they're expounding. And when we study the four tenet schools, when we summarize them in terms of the four main tenet schools, the main Sautrantika school that we're looking at is the followers of reason. The followers of scripture uh, share a lot of understandings with the Vibhashika. And the followers of reasoning are leaning more towards uh, subtle views, subtler, more subtle views. So we, when, we, when we look at tenets in general, we're following the Sautrantika's following reason. So those are the fundamental vehicle tenant schools, Vibhashka, Satrantika. And then when we look into the universal vehicle, um, again, the Chitta Matras or the mind-only school is also, we find that there is this, not disparity, but there are different practitioners, different proponents. There are those who follow scripture and those who follow reasoning. Um, and when we follow a general presentation of these four tenet schools, we're primarily looking at the Chittamatrans who follow scripture. Why that's the case, I'm not 100% clear on, but <laughs> this is the 
This is the formula that has been developed over the centuries in Tibet. And then we look at the Madhyamaka school, the Middle Way school. And again, we find that there are divisions um, depending on these more subtle understandings and refinements of their tenets. And it's interesting that even Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Galub tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, he was very clear in saying that uh, we don't find these names or these divisions spelled out clearly in the Buddhist teachings. But actually, they, they were first identified, I think it's fair to say, uh, in Chandrakirti's uh, writings and expositions. And so um, followers of Chandrakirti who came after him, uh, like Tsongkhapa, who really relied on Chandrakirti's teachings, um, then we, we start using these terms, Svatantrika, now that's different than Sautrantika, Svatantrika, uh, which, uh, so Madhyamaka means middle way, and there are two divisions, two main divisions. The Svatantrika means middle way autonomy school. And the other division is the Prasangika, the middle way consequence school. So, um, those of you who have heard teachings um, on emptiness, detailed teachings on emptiness, you'll start to recognize these terms. You've probably come across these terms before. And even the Svatantrika school has, again, two divisions. There's the Sautrantika Svatantrika Madhyamaka. <laughs> In other words, the Sutra, Sutra Middle Way Autonomy School. And the Yogacara Svatantrika Madhyamaka, or the uh, Mind Only Middle Way Autonomy School. And again, I've highlighted the Yogacara Svatantrika because when we study tenets in general, the Yogacara Svatantrika is the one that is uh, primarily spelled out in detail. And luckily, um, Prasangika has no divisions. <laughs> I bet there are divisions. I mean, when you, when you do read about tenants or you talk to different teachers, you will hear people say, well, when you ask about a particular question, they'll say, well, there are different, there's debate about that. There are different points of view. Um, but for all intents and purposes, when we study tenets, we're just talking in about the prasangika. So I hope that's not too much detail, but maybe a little more detail to flesh out what we're talking about um, when we're talking about tenets. And um, in the first few teachings on this chapter, Geshe-la distinguished, let's see, I think he called them expounders of, I can't remember, expounders of, ex or proponents of external phenomena. can't remember exactly. But the Vibhashka and the Sautrantikas, they, they assert that things truly exist. Um, and, okay, so that's like one grouping. Uh, I'll go back in just a minute and find um, that exact term that he used. Um, expounders of 
anyway, and then we were talking about realists. And basically, realists um, in the Buddhist schools, realists would include these two fundamental vehicle schools, Vibhashka and Sautrantika, but also includes the Chitta Mantra. Because all three of those Buddhist schools still assert some level of true existence. Um, some um, intrinsic existence of an object from its own side. All of the Buddhist schools will um, assert selflessness of person. And they have different understandings of selflessness of person. There's coarse and there's subtle and there's different ways of understanding that. But for instance, the fundamental vehicle do not assert selflessness of phenomena. Why? Because they assert that phenomena truly exist. That's part of their assertion. And in the universal vehicle, all of those schools, Chitta Mantra and Manyamaka schools, all of them assert a selflessness of person, but also now a selflessness of phenomena. However, each of these schools will have a more refined way of presenting that. So I'm going to spell that out in just a few minutes. So when we're talking about realists, we're talking about these first three tenet schools, Vibhashika, Sautrantika, and Chitta Mantra. And so um, Shantideva is talking from a Madhyamaka point of view. And although um, I, I can't remember exactly it, if he goes into the fine details later on in the chapter, we'll find out. <laughs> Um, it's been a while since I studied chapter nine, um, but he's talking from a Madhyamaka or a middle way uh, point of view. All of these schools actually assert that they are teaching the middle way because the, the Buddha asserted that we need to follow the middle way. All of these schools will say, well, we have the middle way. But as we find by studying their tenets, their middle way um, is is either more towards asserting inherent existence or more refined, not asserting inherent existence. Okay, I have one more slide about the tenant schools that I think uh, will be helpful. There are many different presentations on tenants. Like I said, the, the book that I'm um, recommending is this Cutting Through Appearances Practice and Theory of Tibetan Buddhism by Geshe Lundup Sopa, and um, along with Jeffrey Hopkins. And I think it's laid out very clearly. The first half of the book is really a summary, a beautiful summary of uh, the Lam Rim. And then the second half is this presentation, general exposition of Buddhist tenets. And it goes through each of these four tenet schools in enough detail to really give us some understanding, but not so much detail um, that it's completely overwhelming. But I'll show you how each, each tenant school is laid out. There are these, um, these four basic divisions. First of all, there's a de definition of the proponents of that school. Like, for instance, if we looked at the definition of the Great Exposition School, that would be the definition of a proponent of the Great Exposition is a person propounding lesser vehicle tenants 
who does not accept self-cognizing consciousness and who ex asserts external objects as being truly established. So it's helpful to have a definition of each of these schools and then we can compare, well, how's that different from the next school or the previous school? So there's a definition. There's also a division of the sub-schools. Sometimes it, it says divisions or, or it can be um, termed as sub-schools. Like we saw, there are uh, proponents uh, following scripture, proponents following reasoning. And then there's the etymology of the name, just so that we can understand why are they called Vibhashikas? Why are they called Sautrandikas or Chittamantras or Madhyamakas? So there's a, a description of the etymology. And then we really get into uh, the important aspects of each school, the assertion of their tenets. And this is divided into three sections, the assertion of the basis, the assertion of the path, and their assertions of the results of the path. So maybe you've heard this threefold division before, basis, path, and result. That's a common um, division of, of the teachings. So if we look at the basis, um, this is each school's description of what exists. So they, they, they um, describe how they think objects exist, like what objects exist. This is where you find their description of the two truths. Um, this is how we began this chapter nine, looking at each of the four schools assertion on the two truths, um, but also looking into objects like how they divide everything that exists like matter um, consciousness uh, non-associated composites maybe some of you are familiar with those terms so assertions regarding objects and then assertions of object possessors in other words what is it that knows these objects what is it that possesses these objects so here this is where we find the description of each school's presentation of what is a person? You know, what is this person who's cycling in cyclic existence? Each school has a different, um, like a different illustration of a person. They also have different descriptions of the types of consciousness that exist, that each person has or can develop. So that's a very important uh, chapter, um, the assertion of the basis which includes objects and object possessors, or we could say subjects, objects and subjects. You can say it that way too. Then there's the assertions of the path. What is it that uh, practitioners on that path are trying to observe in their meditation on selflessness of person and or selflessness of phenomena? And what are the objects that they're trying to abandon on that path? Um, so I'll say more about this in just a moment. And then what is the nature of those five, five paths? You know, like the path of accumulation, path of preparation, path of seeing, path of meditation, path of no more learning. So the nature of the paths and also then we have the assertions of the results of the path. Some of these schools um, assert three final vehicles, you know, that, that there will be liberation for some and they can't achieve full awakening. But the last two schools assert that no, there's one final vehicle 
everyone can achieve full awakening. So uh, next, what I'd like to do, I thought several times while Geshe Chidrek was teaching on those first few verses, especially I think it was verse three and verse four. Um, and he started talking about the different assertions of tenets. I thought it would be so helpful if people had at least some brief outline um, of the different presentations of, um, like in, when we saw the assertions of the path, the different things that people are trying to abandon and the different things that um, people are trying to um, accomplish. Uh, I thought it would be helpful to see an overview, like a progression going through the different schools of what is it they say actually is the selflessness of person? What is it that each of them say actually is the selflessness of phenomena? Which ones assert selflessness of phenomena and which, which don't? So I'd like to put up another screen share and um, I can make these available and we'll find a way to make these available on the YouTube channel, maybe a link um, that if you want to download this chart, you can at a later time. So we'll just go through this slowly. Um, I'm trying, <laughs> trying to give an overview to make things more simple. Um, for some, this may seem quite complicated if you're new to it, if you're brand new to it. If you have some familiarity, and then my hope is that um, this will give you context for the teachings that Geshe-la has given and will continue to give. All right, so let's take a look at this next screen share. So in this, uh, in this file, in this document, um, what I've tried to do is a comparative analysis or just a brief overview, really. This is just a brief overview of what each of these um, four schools, it looks like there's five, but actually these last two are um, both middle way schools, right? So a brief overview of coarse selflessness of persons that they assert, subtle selflessness of persons, coarse selflessness of phenomena, and subtle selflessness of phenomena. So let's just go through this slowly. Uh, it looks like a lot of words, but I think you'll, you'll find that we've already been talking about some of this, and hopefully seeing them in a comparative way like this will help you understand the progression um, that we're working through, going from the Bhaivashika school all the way up to um, the Prasangika Madhyamaka, the Middle Way Consequence School. Okay, so, and I've used colored coding here, hopefully to make it easier to see how there's a lot of similarity and where the differences lie. So notice how the Bhaivashikas, Sautrantikas, Chittamantras and Svatantrika Madhyamaka all assert the same core selflessness of person. And that is a person's emptiness of being a permanent, unitary, independent self. 
So there is, there is no Buddhist who asserts a permanent, unitary, independent self. Um, they all refute that. But this was something that was very common at the time of the Buddha, asserted by non-Buddhist. So that's why it's important that Buddhists were um, identifying this as an object of negation. But it's a coarse object of negation. So, yes, a person exists, but, but we need to understand how the person exists. So non-Buddhist schools were saying that there is a permanent, unitary, independent self, an Atman. They were asserting an Atman. And the Buddha very clearly said, no, there's no Atman. There's no permanent, unitary, independent self. So that's the core selflessness as a person. Now, when we get down to the prasangika presentation, we'll find that there's a refinement. Notice how the svatantrika madhyamakas also refute as the coarse selflessness of person, or their presentation, I should say. Their presentation of a person's coarse selflessness of person is a person's emptiness of being permanent, unitary, independent self. Prasangikas make a distinction. They say, no, the, the Really, that's what you're asserting as being coarse is actually extremely coarse. So we're going to say uh, what you assert as the more subtle selflessness of person is actually, for us, the coarse selflessness of person. You can see how, uh, for the prasangikas, now that's in red. But if we look into the, the column of subtle selflessness of person for all the schools, all the schools except prasangikas assert that the subtle selflessness of person is a person's emptiness or lack of being substantially existent in terms of being self-sufficient. In other words, being able to stand alone. Each of those schools will assert some, some they will refute uh, this this type of um, a self. You know, the self still exists, but it lacks this type of um, substantial existence. They say the self is imputed. Okay, so I, I don't want to go into too much explanation or, or detail of each of these, but just to give a visual presentation of the progression of each of these um, Buddhist schools. Okay, so notice how Vibhashika asserts that same subtle selflessness of person. Sometimes you'll see this um, described as a person's emptiness of being self-sufficient, substantially existent. It's the same thing we're talking about here. So that's true for Vibhashika, Savtrantika, Chittamantra, and even Svatantrika, Madhyamaka. But now look for the Prasangikas. Their subtle selflessness of person is even more refined. They say it's actually the emptiness that is a person being empty of being inherently existent. So they, they have taken this subtle selflessness of person asserted by the previous schools and said that's our, that's course for us. But what's more subtle in terms of our presentation is a person being empty of being inherently existent. 
So the challenging thing is that all of these schools use similar uh, words. They they will they all talk about inherent existence. All of the schools below Prasangika Madhyamaka assert inherent existence. It's only the Prasangikas who refute even inherent existence. All the lower schools say that if something didn't inherently exist, it wouldn't exist at all. But that's not true um, from a Prasangika point of view. Okay, so the main point I'm trying to make here is see how there's a lot of similarity when we're talking about selflessness of person, there's a lot of similarity between the, the schools lower than Prasangika, but there's a distinction with the Prasangikas. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. So that's, that's kind of the easier uh, part of this chart to understand. Now let's take a look at the coarse selflessness of phenomena and the subtle selflessness of phenomena. Now notice that the Vibhashika and the Satrantikas, oh, I misspelled it there too, sorry. I can just fix that. Okay. Um, Satrantika. Vibhashika and Satrantikas, especially those, the followers of reason, they do not assert a coarse selflessness of phenomena. Why? Because they say anything that exists, um, it truly exists. And so, for them, so anything that's an established base, anything that exists, is a self of phenomena. It truly exists. So they actually assert self of phenomena. They do not assert a selflessness of phenomena. And that's true for Vibhashika and Savtrantika. So this is an important distinction to make, that the two uh, fundamental vehicle schools, Vibhashika and Savtrantika, only assert a selflessness of person, not a selflessness of phenomena. Now, let's look at the last um, two schools, Chittamandra and Madhyamaka, mind only and middle way, and look at the distinctions that they make. So, of the universal vehicle schools, Chittamandra, Svatantrika, and Prasanka, the Chittamandras are the first ones to assert a selflessness of phenomena in addition to selflessness of persons. And they have their own very unique way of talking about that. Um, any of you who have heard teachings on mine only, you may remember that they say that both an object and the mind apprehending that object both arise from one substantial cause. It comes from a karmic seed. That's their presentation. And although that's very different than the previous two schools and the later two schools, there is a real purpose for understanding this. It can really help us in our practice uh, because it helps to highlight um, the important role of karma in how we see things. But have a look at what they assert. They, they assert these two selflessnesses of phenomena. They don't have a coarse one. They just assert one. So I put it in the subtle selflessness of a phenomena category. The emptiness that is a form and the 
the valid cognizer or the mind apprehending that form being empty of being different substances. They assert that those two things are the same, that they come from the same substance. But if a person is seeing those as coming from being distinct, as coming from different substances, that for them would be an object of negation. That would be um, grasping at a self of phenomena. So for them, the opposite of that, the selflessness of phenomena would be the emptiness. That is a form, any object, and the valid cognizer or mind apprehending that object as being different substances. There's a second aspect to that, but let's not go into that right now. That's a little too complicated. But notice, I've, I've put this in blue because look, the, the mind only, I mean, excuse me, the, the middle way school, the Svatantraka Madhyamaka, take that um, subtle selflessness of phenomena asserted by the Chitta Mantras, and they say, well, no, actually, that's the, for us, that's the course. We understand that as the course selflessness phenomena, the emptiness that is a form or an object, and the mind apprehending that object as being different substances. But what we're going to assert is that as the subtle selflessness of phenomena is that all phenomena are empty of true existence. Now, they're using this term, true existence, and so we have to understand what do they mean by true existence or empty of true existence. So for them, being empty of true existence means being empty of being established from the side of its own unique mode of subsistence. So they're subtle. I mean, of course, selflessness of phenomena is what the Yogacharans asserted as subtle. But now they're saying all phenomena are empty of true existence. So that's, um, that's an important distinction to make. But how do they understand true existence? If something were truly existent for them, they say it would be established from the side of its own unique mode of subsistence without being merely imputed by conception or mind. So in essence, what they're saying is that for something to be an existent, it needs, there needs to be like 50% from the side of the object and 50% from the side of the mind. And when you have those two things together, then you have an object. But if something appears to be only coming from the side of the object without being imputed, merely imputed by conception, that's what they're asserting as true existence. Now, the Prasangika take this to the next level and they say, well, actually, there's, we agree that all phenomena are empty of true existence, but our understanding of true existence is even a little more subtle than yours. For us, to be empty of true existence means that all phenomena are empty of being inherently existence. So their understanding of being empty of being inherent existence compared to Svatantrika is that uh, things are merely labeled. There is nothing coming from, inherently coming from the side of the object. Things are merely imputed 
by language and conception. That is like the most refined understanding of this selflessness. Okay, so this is like an overview. I, I don't expect that anyone new to this is going to just immediately say, oh, uh-huh, I understand now. <laughs> but hopefully by having this in a presentation form, you have something to refer to and something to build on. Now I'd like to make one more distinction here before I stop the screen share. And that is, notice how for the prasangika, if we look at their uh, subtle selflessness of person and subtle selflessness of phenomena, the object of negation, the object they're negating is the same in terms of being inherently existent. See, it, the emptiness that is a person being empty of being inherently existent, the emptiness that is a phenomena being empty of inherent existence. So they distinguish these two selflessnesses, selflessness of person and selflessness of phenomena in terms of the object, not the object of negation. The object, object of negation is the same. It's inherently existent. But what the distinction is, whether it's a person or a phenomena other than a person. Actually, a person is a phenomena, but when we say phenomena here, selflessness of phenomena, we're talking about phenomena other than persons. Okay? So the object of negation is the same, being inherently, we can highlight that, being inherently existent, being inherently existent. Now, notice for all, for the previous two um, universal vehicle schools, Actually, that's not true for them. Notice how the object of negation, let's look at the Svatantrika Madhyamaka. Their object of negation is a person's emptiness of being substantially existent in terms of being self-sufficient. But their selflessness of phenomena, the subtle one, is being established, um, is, is being empty of true existence. So the object of negation, what they're negating there, are different. Actually, although it says a person's emptiness, this can apply to any phenomena. Um, because they say that, that a person's emptiness of being substantially existent um, is, is, is their presentation for selfless as a person, but it can also be the, they can also apply this to an object of use of a person um, who is substantially existent in terms of being self-sufficient. That might be a little difficult to explain right now, but just know that this can apply to persons or phenomena, and this can apply to persons or phenomena, even though it says phenomena here. It can apply to both. So they're not distinguishing selflessness of person and selflessness of phenomena by way of the object because it both apply to persons and phenomena, but they're distinguish it, distinguishing these two in terms of the object of negation. The object of negations are different for the Svatantika Madhyamaka. The object of negation for the Prasangika are exactly the same. So that's a huge difference and something very unique to the Prasangika Madhyamaka. Okay, I think we'll stop the, the screen share there. Um, 
So unfortunately, we don't have the capacity today uh, to do interactive questions. I would, oh, excuse me. There's, there's one question from Val. To avoid confusion, is it appropriate to only understand and follow the Prasangika Madhyamaka school as that is the one that we follow? <laughs> no, that's not a silly question, Val. It's an important question to understand because on one hand, we really want to understand the Prasangika Madhyamaka because that, that is the most refined presentation of the Buddha's teachings. At the same time, the importance of understanding all these other tenant schools is that that's really the only way we're going to be able to identify in ourselves our own erroneous views. And to see this, this graded progression of going from the more, more coarse presentations all the way up to the most subtle Prasangika Madhyamaka presentation. What's challenging is that many of us have probably heard more teachings from the Prasangika point of view. And so that it may feel awkward to go back into these lower schools. But to really understand um, the most subtle presentation of the Prasangikas, it, it is so helpful. Over time, it is so helpful to study tenets and to look at these lower schools. And so that's what we have an opportunity to do here in Chapter 9. Um, it's, it's not going to be handed to us on a silver platter. We're going to have to work to understand this for sure. Um, but I think if you are willing to hang in there and listen to um, Geshe's teachings, and really try to review them, really try to understand them, understand where your questions are. Because if we can get really clear about our questions, then we can come back to either Geshe-la or, um, you know, any of us here at the Abbey, you can write to us, um, or you can write to Venerable Children and ask her these questions. You know, eventually we'll be able to clarify our doubts and come to um, a fuller understanding. We are also so fortunate that Venerable Chodron has co-authored these books with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There are three separate volumes, all dedicated to understanding emptiness. And I've read all three of them. They're, they're gorgeous books. And um, in Venerable's uh, classic, clear style, she has um, edited and arranged His Holiness's teachings in a way that will be more suitable for Westerners. So we're very fortunate to have that resource. Um, so there, there is, in volume seven, I believe, there is some presentation on the tenant schools, and that would be a good resource also for those of you who are interested in putting in a little extra time to understand these different presentations. Also, as I mentioned before, Cutting Through Appearances is a very good resource. You can see I've tabbed all the, the four schools so that I can quickly turn to them. Five, well, four and a half, you know, Middle Way has two schools, two divisions. Um, that's a, a really good resource. Oh, and volume nine also has a big section on the two truths, which Geshe-la started with uh, when he began chapter nine. Thanks.
gonna blow lumps so. Okay, <laughs> so that was a lot of information, but I'm I'm really hoping that just just that presentation will provide context for people who may feel a little bit lost in um, these early teachings on chapter nine. Um, please keep all the Abbey monastics in your prayers and dedications as, as um, many of them are recovering from COVID. You know, it's many of you out there have already had COVID. We've been in a COVID bubble um, since 2020, and this is the first exposure that we've had. Uh, Venable Damcha is also COVID free because she had COVID recently when she came back from India. And so she has natural immunity right now. And like I said, um, I'm, I'm just returning from India, so I haven't been exposed and I'm doing my best to <laughs> avoid being exposed. But please keep all of us in your prayers. And, you know, it's just a matter of time. It takes, you know, five days to get over being infectious and a few more days or weeks to get over just feeling crummy. And, um, you know, eventually we'll be back and running as at usual warp speed. <laughs> keeping the Abbey going and all the retreats uh, that are lined up for the fall. We have quite a, quite a number of retreats coming yet to, yet to happen this year. Okay, so that's all I have for today. And uh, let's just take a moment to rejoice that we've even come in contact with the Buddhist teachings and particularly these teachings on his presentation of emptiness, selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena, by understanding these two selflessnesses, we can overcome the grasping, self-grasping ignorance, grasping at a self a person, grasping at a self a phenomena that really keep us cycling in cyclic existence. So we're so fortunate to even put imprints on our mind stream, even more fortunate if we can really study and come to some clear understanding of these topics. Oh, let me just um, suggest one other resource that is really, really good. And that's a book that Venerable edited for Geshe Jampa Teksho called Insight into Emptiness. That's also a brilliant book. Um, so rather than jumping into the three volumes of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, that would probably be a good primer to start with. It's called Insight into Emptiness. Um, not sure who the publisher is. Um, but anyway, that's another good resource. Okay, so let's dedicate. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Puddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>